Everybody and welcome to the Deadhead Cannabis Show. Uh, Jim Marty here reporting from sunny and warm 86 degree Denver, Colorado. I've got my partner up in Chicago, Larry Mishkin. Larry? Jim, how you doing? Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the show uh, in Chicago, where it is sunny, warm, and humid, just like it's supposed to be this time of year, uh, which is fine, and uh, the air conditioning is working very well. Thank you. So we're all quite comfortable. Um, all is going well. No new word on our licenses, Jim. It's becoming uh, a little bit of a uh, sick joke almost that uh, we keep plodding along week after week uh, and just kind of... Um, expect that next week we're going to hear next week we're going to hear um and absolutely nothing um and and not to take us too far off track but something we'll talk about in the future because i suspect it's just going to get worse for all of these people who have real estate contracts or leases who have been putting them on contingency waiting to see if they got a license that's that's what's been keeping me busy at the moment so um we got a lot going on here and it would be nice if uh if we just found out our winners um having said all of that uh we uh, are very lucky today, Jim. Um, we have on our show today a guest, Matt Mayberry. Matt's with Trim. That's T-R-Y-M, as we'll come to learn in a minute. Uh, Matt does work in the cannabis industry, and his company creates some very interesting cannabis-related software. Um, so uh, let's dive in. Matt, welcome very much to the show. We're glad you can join us today. Yeah, thanks both of you for having me. Really excited to be here. Absolutely. Um, you know, before we get to the music side, which we know we all love to talk about, um, we would really love to hear about Trim. And, uh, you know, what can you tell us about it? Where did the idea come from? How did you get it started? And where are you today? Yeah, so uh, Trim was started by myself and uh, two co-founders, Benjamin Wong, uh, who was a colleague that I worked with previously, and then also my wife, Karen, uh, Karen Mayberry. And the idea for Trim basically came from... Uh, uh, ben, Karen, and I all kind of kicking around this concept that uh, we wanted to get into cannabis. We had a lot of friends that were growers. We had friends that worked in the dispensary space. Uh, ben actually previously worked uh, in the med days up in Mendocino. He, he worked on a farm uh, in his like mid-20s, roughly. And then uh, I actually worked in, I guess, what we call the legacy market now on the East Coast when I was following around rock bands for a good part of my 20s. Uh, cannabis was a, a, a reasonable part of that effort. And so uh, we, we had experience in the industry. Uh, ben and I both were working at the time at a tech company as engineers. And he and I started to connect on the idea that uh, we both previ had uh, previously grown and uh, just looking at the idea of getting into the space. Um, since Karen had done some home growing and Ben and I had both done some really lightweight commercial growing, uh, we decided to the, the the cultivation space was probably the place that we should look. <clears throat> we started looking uh, around the market and looking at the technology that existed. And what we found was in California, specifically where we were looking uh, around the end of seven, 2017, uh, early 2018, 
there were technologies that existed, but the majority of growers, like the tried and true technology they were using to, to grow was, was still the stuff that they, people were using when we were growing. And it was, you know, pen and paper, notebooks, and, and maybe some Excel to track data. And so we first started trying to figure out how we could uh, actually get data out of these girls to help growers so that they could grow a better product. And that was the initial inception. We, we started out with the idea that we would be a data company. And then along the way, we realized there were things that we needed to do to actually become that. So uh, a lot of the one of the biggest operational expenses growers have is their their labor. And so we needed a way to track their their uh, you know, what their team's doing and who's doing it and how much time do they spend on things. Uh, another big expense is uh, what they spend on on energy and their their cooling and and their uh, 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 things like the the temperature humidity and CO two are obviously really big contributors to uh, the quality of the product that you get out of it as well uh, that you got out of the grow and so we started looking at how we could uh, track the the things that have an impact on the grows and and do it in a way that was done uh, in such a way that we could actually leverage that data into the future to to provide it insights into how to improve your your crops in the future. Um, so that was the initial inception. Along the way, we got kind of pulled into the cannabis compliance area because uh, that's obviously a big piece of, of running a grow in, in the legal markets. Uh, so now we also have a, an integration with Metric. But uh, yeah, we just constantly listen to our customers, figure out what problems they have, and then, and then figure out how to address it. So Matt, um, does your product then help them with their cost accounting? Because as an accountant in the industry, with lots of clients and lots of cultivation clients, but very few of them really understand their true cost to grow a pound of marijuana. Yeah, so I'd say that's definitely uh, been a goal of our product from the beginning, and it's one that we're getting really close to. So right now, uh, we actually initially had the idea, uh, Ben and I, at the, the company that we were at previously, we, we ha uh, were at a solar technology company, and so we had a lot of experience in energy. So our initial idea was let's do something in energy management. But as we started to interview growers and do reviews on on the growth, um, we realized that there were other things that were more important than doing that and tracking labor and tracking environmentals and compliance kind of bubbled up as the most important things. Uh, we did actually write a piece of code very early uh, that would allow us to get energy bill information around how much they were spending and be able to attribute that to the plants. And we also have their labor information. And so with those two things to combine, it's about 75% of their total operational expenses. We haven't yet done uh, QuickBooks integration, but that's something that's on our roadmap. And when we combine all of those things together, we'll be able to actually get that kind of the, what we believe is gonna be the most, uh, the most sophisticated cost of goods sold for cultivators uh, that, that exist. And so that's definitely a goal of ours. And it's one that a lot of customers have been asking for. So certainly something that we're, we're looking at pretty heavily. Very, very good. Yeah, it's very important. Um, you know, there are some cost accounting systems out there, but they're not really cannabis specific. So we have to kind of jury rig them. Conversations with clients, I'll calculate their cost to grow a pound. And I'll say, you know, you could be buying pounds on the legal market for way less than you're, you're spending to grow. They just don't really understand all the costs that go into it. And then you have to allocate overhead you have to factor in any transfer taxes, like here in Colorado, we have an excise tax when the pound goes from the cultivator to the retailer. And that's true even if the uh, retail is the same company. So um, anyway, I digress. I could talk about cost accounting and cannabis all day long. So um, I did see in the notes that you recently completed a, a fundraising round. 
Yeah, we haven't uh, publicly announced that yet, but we uh, we uh, we have recently closed around. Uh, we did a, a small kind of friends and family um, convertible note round in uh, 2019. Uh, this this year, we've completed a larger preferred round, uh, so it's our Series Seed, and uh, we'll be putting out some news about that in the in the very near future. But yeah, we're we're really excited to. Uh, you know, raising money becomes a full-time job for the founders, and so we're excited to be able to get back to get back to business, if you will. Yeah, it really does take a lot of time. I spend a lot of time in that area. Uh, right now, and across the country, it seems there's way more projects and people who have licenses or provisional licenses uh, than there is capital to fund them. Um, I was on the phone with a California company yesterday that has stopped construction on their greenhouse because they run out of money and they can't raise money. And I'm seeing a lot of that with my clients too, you know, so the, the fact that you guys can go out and have a successful raise um, obviously speaks to, you know, both the quality of your project and, you know, the fact that you guys know what you're doing out there, which is a very valuable skill to have in this industry where there's lots of ideas and uh, only so much money to go around. Um, now, let me ask you the million dollar question that uh, always comes up when we talk about something like this. What kind of support service do you provide? That's a great question, and it's one that's really important, honestly, because uh, the, especially when you're dealing with customers' compliance, right? We're we're the gatekeeper ultimately between the grow right. and and their reporting uh, information to the state that could either cause them to be fined or to lose their license. So uh, we treat any support that has to do with compliance as the highest priority, um, because <clears throat> so we treat any any. Uh, any issue that could theoretically impact a customer's com compliance as like a priority one event. And it's all hands on deck to get that solved as quickly as possible. Um, we have 24 hour support. Uh, what we mean by that is uh, if you were to be working within our system and you have an issue, we have a chat widget in there that you can use to contact us. You'd also have our customer support team's phone number. Uh, and likely you probably have either my phone number, Ben's number or Karen's number as well. Um, and we get, we get hit up from all of those. You know, we're a relatively small team, so we're still able to provide what we call white glove service uh, to, to our customers. Um, we've been told by many of our customers we have the best support in cannabis. Um, I hope to maintain that as we continue to grow, because uh, that's really important to us. And I think given how relationships have built this industry and will continue to be the primary way that, that uh, business is done in cannabis, in my opinion, uh, maintaining that level of support is really is really important. You know, we started this company to help growers and we don't ever want to be in a situation where uh, people are saying negative things about us because we're not able to provide them the service that they deserve. No, I think that that's really, really important and that's great. Uh, you know, some of the uh, early software compliance programs that came out, um, you know, it was always you hear the stories about how, oh, the program crashed and we had it basically shut down for the day because we our compliance software wasn't operating. We had no way to keep track of what we were doing and what we weren't doing. And um, I know for some of those early companies, you know, the, 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 the thing that separated the winners from the losers was who could provide that level of customer service. And really, uh, in this industry, wouldn't you agree, timing is everything that when these guys are supposed to be operating, they need that software up and running. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, I, I, as we first started Trim, I looked at some of the first wave of cannabis software companies with envy, thinking, oh, they had the money was so easy, they had they had it so good, and then you know we've kind of seen along the as we've grown our business that uh, that first wave 
was really, they were on the leading edge, but they were definitely also on the bleeding edge. And they, they took some blows that uh, I'm lucky to not have to take at trim. So we've learned from some of those mistakes that some others have made. We're, we're lucky enough to kind of be in this second wave of cannabis software. And uh, I, I feel uh, grateful for the time that we launched and, and really grateful for the position that we're in right now. Sure. Very good. And it's interesting that um, your software ties into metric, correct? Yeah, correct. Because, uh, you know, that is the state approved system here in Colorado, but also many other states as well. Yeah, I think it's 13 states plus District of Columbia at this point. So they're, they're definitely the incumbent when it comes to state selected systems. Right. And for our fans out there who may not know, the metric system is what tells the state of Colorado or the state that you're in the movement of your cannabis through the system. So it's tracked when you transfer a pound from the cultivator to the retailer and then from the retailer to the customer. Okay. And that was actually my next question for you, Matt. I assume that you provide services to grows all over the country. Yeah, I think we're in nine states now. And uh, that is just recently expanded because we got our first customer out in Hawaii. Uh, but we're in uh, most of the, the main states that you would think of when you think of cannabis cultivation. So we've got uh, California, Oregon, Washington, Colorado, uh, a couple of new states on, on the ticket with uh, Massachusetts, Michigan, uh, Illinois. Uh, and then we've also uh, uh, just recently Hawaii. So that's a lot of states, though, would you have to maintain a big knowledge of compliance, right? For every state to the extent they have things that operate differently from one state to another. Yeah, we, um, right now for compliance are really focused on California. We've dabbled a little bit in Oregon as well. Uh, so we, our, our system is really broken into three primary modules. We have the task management system and our, that's one module. Then the second is our environmental monitoring and analytics. Those two things combined are what we call our farm management service. And then we have the third service, which is uh, our, our compliance module. And so given the complexity that you just mentioned, uh, we decided to really do one thing exceptionally well first before we branch out. And that one thing Got that it. we're focusing on is really, really nailing California. Uh, sure. We do have a service that is valuable and, and people are paying for and enjoying in other states. Um, but it's uh, currently outside of California or Oregon. It's really the uh, exclusively the farm management services that we're providing. Got it. Okay. Interesting. Uh, but to your point, that's a massive undertaking and it's one that we uh, have not taken lightly. And that's why we've been a little bit cheapish to expand out is, uh, you know, we, we, we want to make sure that uh, we can, we can really deliver on a single market uh, or, or, you know, a very small set of markets before we, we, we roll it out nationwide. Have you identified any market where you might want to go and set up a satellite office or something to help kind of expand out your services? Yeah, it's interesting. We, um, we're an entirely remote team right now. So we've got uh, the founders are from California, and that's where the majority of our employees live right now as well. Uh, but we also have some employees in Colorado, uh, Washington, and Oregon. So we're kind of spread out across all the main, like, I guess, leading edge uh, uh, recreational markets. And so I think uh, really any of those markets could be a place where we decided to, to build a, a brick and mortar if we were to, to do that. And have you guys kind of like put together, um, you know, without revealing any company secrets, obviously, but, you know, uh, 
you know, plans to keep up with this market as it's growing right in Illinois. We're about to get 40 new craft growers, you know, realistically any day now. Um, the, the, the 20 plus medical uh, cultivators are all now expanding into adult use cultivation. And all of these states are coming online. Uh, that just uh, that, that puts a real uh, amount of pressure on you. Do you guys feel like you have the, you know, the ability to scale and, and to be able to service all these markets as they come online? Yeah, it's interesting. We've uh, recently uh, really, we when we first started, we were more focused on craft and uh, kind of single site cultivators. And over time, uh, just by nature of us maturing and, and some of our customers maturing along with us, um, <clears throat> we've moved into much more of like a multi-site or even multi-state operator kind of clientele. Um, so we're working uh, with some some large brands like uh, Cream of the Crop and Presto Labs and things like that now. So we've, we've been successful enough, or we've been lucky enough, I should say, to uh, to really win the business to some of these larger brands. And with that, uh, the great thing about that is we also get their portfolio of cultivation facilities that are largely distributed across a lot of the, the new markets and things like that as well. So um, we, uh, as, a, as, as, a, as a result of having some of these, these larger customers, um, that's, that's ultimately what has led us into some of these newer markets. Okay. So you guys are really, uh, you know, probably on top of these markets as anybody right now, as you kind of, you know, scope them out. Just curious, I get asked this question all the time. Let me ask you, where do you see this industry five years from now? That's a really good question. Um, we, I mean, all of your questions are really good to be honest. It's making me, it's making me think a lot. Um, yeah. So I think that what we're going to see in cannabis is really similar to what you've seen in the past with the wine and spirits and beer industry. Um, where like right now there, uh, is one sector of the beer industry that's actually growing and making money and it's the microbrew industry. But it's only like 80% of the beer produced in the U.S. is produced by about five brands. And then 20% is produced by like 4,000 brands. But that's the one sector that if you look at revenue growth and things like that, that's actually really growing. Um, and so a lot of the other, those, those big five brands, you know, the Anheuser-Busch's of the world are, are <clears throat> they're purchasing, uh, you know, the, the ballast points and, you know, the, the, the small breweries. And they're, uh, but they're letting them maintain their brand and their image because they recognize that that's what the consumer wants. The right. consumer doesn't want the big brand. They want the the boutique brand. They want the local that down the street brewery. Um, and I think that we're going to see that with cannabis. I think we're going to see a lot of consolidation. I think some of it will get rolled into master brands. Like, and think a lot of companies will be going to market as these big conglomerates. But I also think that you're going to see a massive amount of acquisition that where they maintain the integrity of the brand that they bought because they know that's what they're buying. And, um, yeah, so I think if you know, beer and and wine, I think are too specific. I, even craft spirits, uh, a lot that's pretty big in the Bay Area now. These like craft uh, distilleries and things. Sure. Um, I think those are uh, a good model for what we will likely see in cannabis, at least on the recreational side. Yeah. I can't speak as much to the medical side, uh, just because I, I know less about it. But I mean, I, I, that's going to be really exciting, I'm sure. Sure. Right. Well, I've given this a lot of thought too, and. I really think it will look more like the craft beer industry. That's what it looks like today, really. It's craft growers. Some grow for price. Some grow for quality. Um, and you have a, a wide range of prices and quality when you go to a dispensary um, in any of the adult use states. But the big impediment to the um, to big alcohol and uh, big pharma, tobacco to come into this industry is that you can't cross state lines with the product. It's all within the state as far as sales go. 
So you can't export your pounds. Uh, so that's a big impediment to, um, and it's actually, a, in my opinion, a fairly good impediment if you like the way the industry looks today. And if the industry was to be rolled out across all 50 states, and the Colorado model or the Oregon or Seattle model, California's coming along. California has its own challenges, as I'm sure you know, Matt. You still have a very vigorous um, illicit market. <laughs> and really in Colorado, I, I can't really speak to Seattle and Oregon, but I think they're the same as Colorado, where the illicit market really no longer exists. You know, when you can buy a, a really good gram and a quarter pre-roll for eight or nine dollars, you know, how, how is the illicit market going to compete with that? With in California, um, your taxes are so high, it leaves that door open for the illicit market. Yeah, it's definitely still thriving, especially down in Southern California. I haven't, uh, I think Northern California is m more, for whatever reason, <clears throat> more interested in adopting the the kind of new recreational regulations. But uh, Southern California, from the cultivators that we work with down there, have expressed that the, the illicit market is definitely still thriving. Yes. And uh, sign of the times is we're no longer supposed to call it the black market. It's the illicit market now. Correct. It, yeah. Or the, the legacy market is what we uh, right. have, have been calling it. Uh, legacy you know. market. <laughs> I do like little, that too. It gives a little, little touch of respectability. Well, a lot yeah, of people exactly. came from the legacy market. You sure know, they those did. Those were the first round of cultivators when medical came in. Yep. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. Many of them second and third generation, especially in Northern California. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Comes a family. So, let's turn to music. And we have about 10 minutes or so to talk about music. Um, Matt Mayberry um, has let us know that um, he was very much into fish uh, in his college days. Uh, so we're going to let him talk about still, still that. Into fish. I was going to say, I think he still is. It's still right. Yeah, we all are. We all are. You know, I, I miss live music terribly. I, it's really a sad thing. I was walking down Colfax today in Denver, walking past the Fillmore with my son Jack and saying, God, we went to so many shows there. Will it ever come back? But it will. It'll come back. So, um, Matt, why don't you share some of your experience? Uh, Give us a good fish story. Okay. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. So I, I, I'd say fish was probably the biggest inspiration that I had. I, I also spent a lot of time, uh, following around other bands. I, I remember following around Soundtrack Sector Nine when they were just a bar brand, bar band out of Atlanta. Uh, I, I grew up in North Carolina. So a lot of my stories are, are East coast based, but, uh, sure. I actually met my wife on widespread panic tour. Uh, we both <laughs> shared a love for that band as well. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, we've been happily married. We have a, a, a nine-year-old son now. So, but yeah, for fish, um, yeah, I, I mean, I've seen probably over a hundred fish shows. Uh, started out in my senior year of high school, uh, my senior trip, you know, a lot of people were going to go to the beach or go backpacking in Europe. And me and my best friend that ended up being the best man in my wedding, uh, we went on fish tour. That was our senior trip. And uh been following that band around for about as long as I can remember seeing live music uh, in, in, in any real meaningful way. Um, 
you know, I, I was in kind of the very end of what they call the fish 1.0 years before they took their hiatus, uh, their first hiatus. And so I would say I'm mostly a 2.0 fan, which uh, I say begrudgingly because when I listen to fish, I usually listen to like 1995 to 99 and I started seeing them in 99 and barely got barely got in on that. Um, uh-huh. But uh, yeah, I mean, probably uh, one of the coolest fish experiences I've ever had was when we finally got to see them at Red Rocks because when last the last time they had played there, they got they got banned from Red Rocks, so they finally got to come back in 2010, I think. And uh, my wife and I, we got tickets. The most expensive ticket of the tour, uh, it was selling for hundreds of dollars in the parking lot. We uh, we got up to the place where uh, you hand the person your ticket. And I look right behind me, and Karen has this white look on her face. And I'm like, what's wrong? She's like, I don't know where my ticket is. Oh, <laughs> right? She had it the whole way. We were holding her ticket the whole oh, way. We already had to show up once. I was like, oh, God, we're not going to be able to get in. And so we look oh. at the guy, and he sees the terror on her face. And I'm like, we had our ticket down there. That's how we got here. But we don't have your ticket to, to scan it. And he was cool. And he was like, just go ahead. <laughs> he let us in. Wow. So they were selling yeah. for like you know, $500, $600. That's in the great vibes. That's amazing. And, uh, and we got in. We went in, and the show was just amazing. You know, it, uh, it, it started to rain at one point. And uh, the funny thing is, the weekend prior, we had we lived in San Diego at the time, but we were going back and forth between Colorado to see music because that's there was just a really great hub of music in, in Colorado, obviously. Uh, and so we had gone to see Soundtrack Sector 9, SDS 9, the weekend prior, and it rained, and we were totally unprepared. We came with, like, all of our San Diego gear and not enough rain gear. And we so we, we had a pretty bad time at that show, to be honest. Um, so we came back for fish. We were like, we're going to have everything we need. It started to rain. And we had our rain jackets. We had our umbrellas. And we were totally prepared. And we had just the best time at that show. And uh, if you know uh, fish songs very well, there's Split Open and Melt. And there's this part where they have kind of the some some lyrics about rain and, and the water and all of this. And yep. it was just a perfect combination of the, the rain coming down and Split Open and Melt. And it was just an awesome time. But uh, that's just one of thousands of amazing fish stories that I'm sure that we could all share. Well, we have some common experiences. Uh, at the, the last fish shows uh, back in 95 or 96, that was the first time I saw fish was at Red Rocks. And one of the shows I remember very clearly is Fishman came out and did Purple Rain with the vacuum. Ah, Purple Rain, yeah. And then I was That's also funny. at those shows post hiatus, which I believe was 2009, actually. Um, so I was, I, think at you're right. I was at those shows too. And um, one thing I remember very clearly about those shows is might have been the last night that uh, Billy Kreutzman from The Grateful Dead came out and played with Fishman. Oh, right. That was my homework assignment. I remember that. Sure. And they did a killer character zero. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, we were, we went to that night as well. Uh, That was, I think they dropped a mound that night too. It was was really, those were great shows. Yes, they were. What I find is, you know, I saw the Grateful Dead there in 1984 and, you know, just listening to you tell the story about seeing fish there. It's like the, it, it, it sounds like everybody's story who goes to Red Rocks. We drove out there to see the dead in 84 and we got stuck in a big hailstorm. And my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, her the window, the, the back window of her car broke out. And what are we going to do? What do you mean? What do we do? We put a tarp over the window. We drove up to the show. We went to the damn show and, you know, it rained for a few hours and then it stopped in the middle of morning dew and the moon came out the crowd went wild and it was amazing you know it's that's what you go to red rocks for it's a great experience oh, absolutely. it's a lot yeah, of fun. Yeah, I guess, 
Now, here's another question I have for you, Matt. You say you have a nine-year-old. Uh, does your nine-year-old listen to fish? Does your nine-year-old hate fish? And, and, and Jim and I can both relate to this. I have three boys. They range now in age from 29 to 18. And all of them, when they were younger, used to get mad because we'd go on road trips and I would play the dead all the time. Now I find uh, I go to put on something and like half of my CDs are missing because they come in and they grab them and they're running around listening to the dead. Although I will say that for their age, appropriately, they are all big fish fans and they've been going to all the fish shows. I've, I've, I've seen my share, but I, I consider myself a deadhead first and a kind of late comer to the fish scene. Yeah, he, um, I'd say my son is, uh, he has patience for my love of fish. He listens to it. He doesn't complain, but uh, he does make fun of me a little bit when I put up a song and he was like, is this more fish? Uh, that being said, when I'm putting him to bed, you know, if he wants me to sing him a song, he knows that I only know fish songs and he'll be like, you know, sing, uh, uh velvet sea again dad you know so it's uh it's good so i think he he likes it uh but he also enjoys making fun of me a little bit for it i also i am a dead fan i just i'm a dead fan that never saw jerry so i have a hard yeah. time saying i'm a deadhead because uh okay. you know no. we, i was uh in eighth grade i guess in 95 so i wasn't really in my full swing to go see shows yet and uh yeah. You know, so I, I never got to see Jerry, but I did follow, um, I, I saw a lot of Phil and Friends. One of my favorite sure. shows I ever saw was uh, Phil and Friends at Independence Arena in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I, it was with uh, uh, Steve Kimmock and oh, yeah. uh, it was really, really good Phil and Friends. But I uh, saw him at the Oakland, Oakland uh, Coliseum in 2002 as well. And then I even did a whole Phil tour with, when they were playing with the Allman Brothers or what was left of the Allman Brothers. And uh, they switched back and forth uh, on that tour. One would Phil would start one show, and then Almond yep. would do the second set, and then the next show, Almond Brothers would start. Phil would do it, and it wasn't a bit long string. I think it was like eight shows on the East Coast, but it was awesome. It was a lot of fun. I actually saw that one year with uh, the Jerry Garcia band and Frank Zappa in 1984. They were doing a tour, and they came through Chicago. And every night, according to the story, they would flip a coin backstage. And so Garcia Band came out to open, and at first we were all bummed because we were hoping for a nice long guard. And I'd never seen Frank Zappa before, but boy, that was an experience. And I was, I was as much as I would have loved to have seen Jerry all night, having a chance to really see Frank Zappa live was uh, was quite an experience for me. It was a lot of fun. Well, that's yeah, that's a, cooler, that's a cooler story than mine. I'll tell you that. <laughs> that's awesome. I never, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I never got to see Frank Zappa. Yeah, it was, uh, he's, you know, everything that he was advertised to be. He was a tremendous guitar player. You know, he was a real joker and, um, you know, singing songs like Ride My Face to Chicago and things like that, you know, and it was just like, okay, this is, but, you know, then it, it made me just think of his catchphrase, which is just shut up and play your guitar. And when he did, yeah, he was really, really something. It was a lot of fun to see, a lot of fun to see. Um, <laughs> did you catch any of the uh, donut shows, Matt? Uh, no, the uh, the Baker's, Baker's Dozen. Dozen. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was uh, the, the, that was definitely something that was on my radar, but I didn't make it out there. Being on the West Coast, I, I kind of I usually stick to the, the West Coast now. Um, I've been in California since uh, 2007. And so most of our focus is, is there. Did uh, we did go to um, some some East Coast shows. Karen and I, I had a job that moved us to the East Coast for one year. And uh, so we got to see some like Jersey shows and, and New York shows at that point. But yeah, didn't get the Baker's dozen, unfortunately. It's funny you know, Frank Zappa. We just oh, actually went to Tahoe this weekend and uh, or this past week. And on the way up there, uh, we were listening to Fish, as you might expect. And uh, a song came on, and Karen was like, "What's this? This is awesome!" And it was uh, a Zappa cover that Fish played. It's called "Peaches and Regalia." 
And sure. uh, it was like a 99 show where they, they had recover in Peaches and Regalia. And it, it was awesome. Oh, really, wow. really good cover. Yeah. Excellent. So um, we're coming to the end of our time slot because I'm in my Denver office and they have to sterilize each office after we leave. So that's why I have to stop at quarter to five. But I can squeeze in one quick uh, Phil and Friends story from Red Rocks post Jerry's demise. Um, Red Rocks, a lot of the shows is 100% general admission. You know, you would get there right after breakfast and we would uh, get up there, you know, at noon, uh, get on the stairs at Red Rocks. So we ended up in the first five rows, just basically looking right at Phil. And um, that, I believe he was touring with Ryan Adams that tour. And um, they played so late, um, well past 11.30, that all the workers and security basically left uh, and went home <laughs> for a half hour or more. And it was just us and Phil and nobody else. No, no vending, no security, just us and Phil. And um, it was a great, great, long, long show. That's and wonderful. So that's my closing story for today. Uh, Matt, before we take off, uh, please, one more time, uh, tell the listeners uh, your webpage, how they get a hold of you. If they have any questions to work with Trim, what do they do? Yeah, so the website is trim.io, and that's T-R-Y-M.io. Uh, you can also email us at info at trim.io, uh, and that'll get you right into uh, our inbox, and we'll be able to point your question or your demo request either way. You know, normal thing that we do to get people uh, a taste for what we do is we run into a product demo, kind of figure out whether or not our, our solution is the right thing for them. And then uh, we're off to the races from there. Beautiful. Very well, good. Jim, I'm sorry we didn't have more time today. And, and Matt, this is just a tribute to how interesting of a guest you were because we always have our side topics that we can veer into if necessary. And one of the things that I was all excited to talk about today, Jim, and we'll just have to do it next week, uh, is we're coming up on uh, the anniversary of the uh, Grateful Dead Allman Brothers Band concert at Watkins Glen uh, in 1973. Uh, I know Fish has had a couple of famous moments there, one where they actually did play, and then Curveball, where uh, my son was on his way. They, they got there, pulled into the parking lot, and they told him, go home. So yeah. that was brutal. But uh, Watkins Glen, for some reason, just brings out the best. But there was a great story online today floating around about Watkins Glen and they, they tacked on uh, the, the dead's version of Warfrat that they played. So if you, if you go look for it, it's well worth it. It's a good read. It's a good listen. Very good. And I'll tease, I can uh, share my stories of being at Coventry um, oh. back in 2004. Um, I was there. Wow. Too. It was, yep. I was there. Uh, I'm surprised you and I haven't run into each other, but uh, <laughs> it's a big fish world. People, yep. Speaking of running into people, um, I would encourage all of our listeners to spread the word on the Deadhead Cannabis Show. Please try to get us uh, more listeners. But we are getting a lot of listeners, Larry, because I bump into people now all the time who say how much they love our podcast. I have heard people say that to me as well, and besides just my father. So it's, it's nice to expand my base out a little bit and know that there's people out there listening. All right. So this is Jim Marty saying over and out from Denver, Colorado. We'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody. Larry Mishkin, Matt Mayberry, thanks again for being our guest. Have a great week, everyone. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, guys.
Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.